I was sitting next to a student uh, at the college, and uh, we were given an assignment to uh, draw a religious scene. And I have to admit, as soon as I was told that's what we were going to do, my heart kind of sank. Uh, there are some others here who have a hard time drawing a good stick man. <laughs> That'd be me. Um, not, not particularly artistic. And uh, so I'm struggling away, and I'm sitting next to this young guy who happens, of all incredible things, to be one of my relatives. And you say, how is that incredible? Well, I was going to college, I was in my 40s, and he was in his 20s. <laughs> so to be sitting in a class, college class with him is a little remarkable. But here he is, he's sitting next to me, and he's drawn away, and I glance over, just, you know, how you do, in a, in a moment where you're thinking, okay, what, what, what am I going to do now? I glance over and I look at his artwork and my heart sinks all the more and I hope and pray that I'm not going to be graded based on what he does. Because his piece of art is, art is stunning, stunningly beautiful, stunningly detailed. And what's really stunning is he's whipping it out in seconds. And I'm laboring and laboring just to come up with ideas on something that looks good. Oh, man. Well, you know, when it comes to the creation story, I am super impressed with the work that God has done. I'm impressed with what he's done as reported in Scripture. I'm, report, I'm impressed by what I see when I walk around. Uh, I love the beauty the, of the world that God has made. It is in a fantastic place that we live in. And uh, last week, you'll remember that we began a little series on the book of Genesis, and we started out with just a couple of verses, and I do promise we'll pick up the pace after we get through Genesis 1. But Genesis 1 has a lot of stuff in it. So the first verse in, uh, in Hebrew of Genesis 1 has how many words? You remember? It has seven words in Hebrew. Seven words in Hebrew. And of course, how many days did God take to create the world? Seven days. That's no accident, right? And these seven words in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in Hebrew, they have brought a lot of courage and comfort to people down through the years. And they've also brought a little controversy, right? A little conflict, too. But these statements in Genesis chapter 1, they teach us about science, they teach us about metaphysics, they teach us of, of cosmology, a lot of depth has uh, gone into the creation story. And uh, in, these, uh, in this short Genesis, you know, uh, 1 verse 1, we read about the beginning of time. We read that God created space and that God created matter. And all of this means that these things are not eternal. God alone is eternal. God has made time, space, and matter. You'll remember that we said that word in green, in Greek pronounced bara, means to create. And that word is used only 
about God in Scripture. Human beings, you know, we can form, we can make, we can build, but we cannot bara, according to the Bible. God and God alone has that unique capability. Only God can create time, space, and matter. We borrow, we work with stuff, but we can't originate it. Every time of the 50 or more times that bara is used in Scripture, it implies that something extraordinarily good and majestic is being made. You will recall we also talked about this verse, Genesis 1. Verse 2 speaks of the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the waters. And the picture there is of a mother bird hovering over her little ones, eagerly seeking to protect them, to keep them uh, safe, to bring them the best of life. Hovering also distinctly suggests a creature, a person. So if the Holy Spirit is hovering, is not a power that's being spoken of, but rather a person. The Holy Spirit wanted to get going on the creation of this world. Had so many creative thoughts, you know, bouncing around in his mind, and he couldn't wait to get started. And so there's a little bit of... Uh, uh, you know, found out in, in translations like the Holy Spirit was brooding over the surface of the waters. Something going on, rich, going, okay, I'm ready to go. Sort of like a horse at the gate, you know, ready to just go out. Really wanting to get started on this creation project. That Holy Spirit is also hovering over the formlessness and emptiness, the darkness and abyss not only of the world at the beginning, but also in your life and mine. Over the lives of our families and friends, God is there bringing us a new creation, wanting to do something amazing in our lives. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. That Hebrew word is bara, create. Something only God can do. Nothing less than a creative miracle can pull us out of the pit we've dug for ourselves. The mess that we've made. The pigsty, perhaps, that our life has become. Nothing less than the creative power of God. His love can set our life in motion. His love can fix us such that we become incredible people. He can change our damaged life in every way. We read that the earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the surface of the deep. And we pointed out that these two words, formless and empty, they detail for us God's concern, God's agenda for the week. Formless comes first, empty comes next, and that is how the week has actually been laid out in Scripture. First three days, God brings form to this world, and the next three days, God fills what he formed. So 
So as we look through all those days and we ask ourselves, how did that play out? Well, like this. What God first formed, God then filled. And when he was done, he gave the entire earth a rich gift, Sabbath rest. Now, I had this cat. His name was Moochie. And uh, he was an interesting cat, born on the day of an earthquake. His mother got so scared, she gave birth to all her kittens when we had a big earthquake in Olympia, Washington. And um, when he came out, it was very clear from the get-go that he was not going to be like all the rest of the kittens. He had horrible balance. When he fell, he did not land on his feet, but rather on his head, constantly bloodying his nose. His mother refused to even take him out hunting. He just didn't have what it took to do that. Yet, oddly enough, when he grew up, he had wonderful balance. And besides that, he used to show up every Friday night and spend the Sabbath day with our family. He could roam around during the week, but on Friday night, he would come and enjoy a Sabbath rest with all of us. And what we've taken away from this beginning part of the creation story is that God can take our lives, and they may not be very orderly. They may be less than purposeful. They may not be very homey, that is very inviting to, to the people around us. And he can turn us into something remarkably different. He can make our lives ordered, give us purpose, Make us inviting, winsome kind of people. So is that what God is doing in your life? Right now, is that what he's doing? Is he giving you purpose and order? Is he making you the kind of person that others just really love to be around? He alone can do it, but it's your choice. It's not his choice to make for you. You have to make it on your own. So when God was finished and uh, gave the Sabbath rest so that we could, you know, uh, human beings and creatures could hang out with God all day long, hang out with our family and friends and our pets. Uh, I am certain that everyone enjoyed it, just like we did with our cat. We enjoyed the time together. I'm certain back then Adam and Eve did as well. But here are the concerns of God. Here is God's agenda to form a world, to fill it, and to give all a Sabbath rest. He alone can make our lives homey and winsome and ordered and purposeful. But there was more. Just as uh, we get through some of those days on day four where everything really that runs is being directed by God, the sun, the moon, and the stars, God moved on and he began to give creatures a greater sense of freedom more self-direction, as it were. And uh, we see that in this phrase, let the waters bring forth, because God had already said uh, things like, uh, let the earth bring forth vegetation, right? And so here we have the creatures being given some self-directing power, some freedom to create on their own. God has been accused of being selfish. The devil has accused God of that, and God has uh, made it very clear in the creation story that he's far from selfish. In fact, he would love to give to every creature 
all that that creature can possibly contain and use. Whatever power, whatever ability that creature can use, God is willing to give. He does not selfishly retain these things. In our own creaturely sphere, we are able to do exactly what God does, create life. That is an amazing gift. And the, when you show up at the hospital and your wife is pregnant and they hand you that little baby, right, you know right then that creating life is incredible, right? Incredible. So this freedom-giving, selfless God makes us think. Do we give freedom to other people so that they can be all that God wants them to be, or do we try to manage their life for them? Now, that's what we talked about last week. We'd like to move on from that. The creation story is echoed in various places in the Bible and in ways you might not expect. There are certain words that we find in the creation story that we may find only in these other stories that help us understand that when we read the other story, we really should be thinking about creation. How do these two stories fit together? For example, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And, and let them be lights in the dome of the sky or the firmament or the surface of the sky to give light upon the earth. These are the words that God used to describe the lights that God made on day four of creation, right? Now, you'll notice that he did not name the sun and the moon. It's not because God did not uh, know their name or have a name for them. And you'll notice that we learn that he names that firmament sky. Okay, so it's not like God doesn't name things in creation. But he does not name the sun and the moon. Instead, he just calls them lights. In the world in which the Bible arose, people worshipped the sun and the moon. Naming them by name at the beginning might have led people to want to worship them all the more. So God did not use their names, but made it very clear they're just lights, and he made them. He gave no reason for people to worship the sun and the moon. But uh, what's interesting about the word for lights that's used in the creation story, it is consistently used to describe a piece of the sanctuary image. The seven-branched candlestick, or the menorah, in the sanctuary. Really? That's interesting. The phrase for signs and seasons is also the language that's used to describe the Israelite holy days and specifically the Israelite holy days. You'll remember the calendar, a Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 
the Feast of First Fruits and Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. All of these are done in a cycle, a regular cycle, that is described by the same words, signs and seasons. So the words that are used to describe the effects of the sun and the moon on the Israelite calendar, uh, the change of seasons is primarily a word that's used to describe the religious holidays that are connected to the sanctuary in the Bible. That's not all. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the sky to separate the day from the night. The word that's used in Genesis to separate is the same word that's used to describe the veil that's in the sanctuary that separates the most holy place from the holy place. So Genesis chapter 1 is portraying our earth as sacred space. When we were made, our earth was God's tabernacle, his temple. It was sacred space. This reminds us of the book of Revelation, which tells us, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband and I heard a loud shout from the throne saying look God's home is now among his people he will live with them and they will be his people God himself will be with them earth from creation to recreation was always meant to be God's home and where God is where God lives that is a sanctuary We were meant to live with God forever. Life apart from family is a bummer. We have the privilege this weekend of hosting a family from the Seattle area that's come here to visit uh, uh, their relative who, who just was enrolled as a freshman. Uh, and uh, they wanted to see her again. So they came up. And now, of course, they have to travel four or five hours to, to see her used to live right there with them or near them. When we were living in Ohio and we wanted to see these people, we had to hop a jet, fly to Seattle, either rent a car or have them pick us up. And then, of course, how many times a year can you do that uh, on a regular budget? You know, not too many. Being separated from your family and friends is not really fun. And I look forward to the day when that separation is no more. Don't you? God made earth, and he made earth so that it would be his home and our home, so that we could live together for eternity, never apart, always in a position where we could see each other quickly. But the first three days of creation are echoed in, a, I think, a rather interesting way. This is just the fourth day that we were talking about, right? The first three days. I think the first three days portray for us very well God's character, government, and purposes. And that is represented in God's word. 
Let me illustrate by going with the first one. Light representing the character of God. You remember what God said, let there be light, and of course there was immediately, right? We read in Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, wrapped in light as with a garment. So God is wrapped in light. All the time, light. God is portrayed as light in the Bible many, many times. His very being is wrapped in light. But there's more. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, we read, this is the message we've heard from Jesus and proclaim to you. That God is, what? That God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And so, here we see this echo of Genesis chapter 1 and how it teaches us about the character of God. In God, there is nothing but infinite goodness all the time. God is infinitely good all the time. He does not have a dark side. In John 8, verse 12, we Jesus spoke to his disciples saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In 9 verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Here Jesus calls himself the light of the world. Does not then the creation story, when it teaches us about light, point to the character of God? In him is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. Infinitely good, always infinitely good. So, I think day one represents very well the character of God. It represents his essence. The firmament represents, I believe, God's government. On the second day, God created a firmament, uh, what we would call a surface, something that separated water and now had water above the earth, and then there, of course, the water on the earth and the water inside the earth, uh, however it's hidden in pockets and pools. Here, God has made a distinct separation, right? Using what, what he calls, what we call a firmament, uh, a surface. This surface separated the water above and below. Now what's interesting about this word firmament that we find in the Genesis story, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. So God made the firmament and uh, what we see is that that word is repeated in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1 and chapter 10. And what's amazing is that we discover that uh, there was a pavement that uh, is being portrayed as being right under the throne of God. And in fact, it's made out of a particular material. It's crystally like and it's made out of a blue sapphire. The pavement uh, is blue sapphire and even God's throne is blue sapphire. Now, would you agree with me that the throne of God represents a form of government? Yeah, it seems 
easy logic, right? But there's more than that, much more than that, because uh, we're told in the scriptures that when God got ready to give the Ten Commandments to Moses, he provided the tablets, the stone tablets, right? In Exodus, we read about uh, first that they, they saw the God of Israel, these 70-plus uh, people. They saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there was something like a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And as we keep reading, we say, the Lord says to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets, and in Hebrew it's very clear, there's a de definite article there, the tablets of the stone, and whenever you use the word in English or in Hebrew or any other, the stone, you're talking about a stone that's already been talked about. A definite stone. And so the tablets were actually made from part of the pavement that was under and around God's throne. That would mean the Ten Commandments were originally written by God himself on two tablets of blue sapphire that God himself gave to Moses. Now, you remember what happened to them? What, what, what happened to them? Moses broke them, right? And so who produced the next two tablets of stone? Was it God? No, it was Moses. Unfortunately, right? Those two tablets of blue sapphire were shattered. We wish they would have remained, but they were destroyed. But what we're reading in all these different texts is a clear association of God's throne, God's law, with the firmament that God has made in the heavens. So that when one uh, sees the text that God is making a firmament, and connects it with the book of Ezekiel and the books of Exodus, one says, wow, okay. This represents God's government. When we move on to the third day of land and vegetation, we read this. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of how many kind? Every kind. Every kind bearing fruit. You remember what God said to Adam and Eve? You may eat from all the trees in the garden except one. From all of them. Not just one. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's obviously being mentioned and referred to there. And so there's a representation here of tremendous abundance by God. We're living on a planet, you know, that... Uh, has a lot of lush vegetation. Stuff sprouted up all over when God said, let the earth bring forth vegetation. And a lot of that stuff you and I enjoy a great deal. I just planted this summer a, a small fig tree in my backyard. I have no idea how, how well a fig tree is going to grow here in Walla. I don't know if it's too hot, too cold. I, I don't know. I'm giving it a try. But this little fig tree is only about this tall. And he's got 15 figs on him already. I don't know whether or not they will ripen before the frost hits it uh, or not. But, you know, it's amazing. Uh, but I enjoy the stuff that God has made. And one of the things that's amazing about the stuff that God has made, the vegetation that God has caused to exist in this world, 
it doesn't just live for itself so that it can self-propagate, right? That wasn't its purpose. What was its purpose? Oh, food, right? And not just food, but to produce a home environment for many creatures too, right? Including Adam and Eve. So there's a purpose for all this lush vegetation. And that purpose reminds us of God's purpose for our lives. Do you remember what the purpose of God is? Jesus expressed it pretty well in John 10, verse 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came, so here's his purpose, I came that they may have life and have just a tiny little bit of it. Barely exist in it. Hardly make it. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, right? The lush and plentiful vegetation teaches us of the abundant life that God is offering to each of us. In doing this, we learn about God's purpose for our own lives. You remember what Jesus said of himself and thus of God in Mark 10, verse 45? For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There's a biblical text that shocks a lot of people when they read it because it portrays the God of the universe as throwing a big dinner. And he's the one serving the food. Really? This is what God is like, the God who serves other people. And it reminds us not only of what God's purposes are, that he is a servant God, but it reminds us what our purpose should be. We should serve others just as Jesus serves us. And so I believe that these three days have distinct ties to God's character, government, and purposes. And all of this, of course, reminds me of this Ellen White passage I read one day long ago. She wrote, in order to endure the trial before them, that would be the last days, in order to endure the trial of the last days before them, they must understand the will of God as revealed in his word. They can honor God only as they have a right conception of his character, government, and purposes, and most importantly, act in accordance with them. Knowing these things, the right conception of these things, is good. But if you don't live your life according to what you know, no benefit for you or anyone else around you. So when we talk about God's character being infinitely good, we're told in Matthew 5.16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Just as God set the sun, the moon, and the stars in the sky to light up how much of the earth? Say that again, louder. All of it. He put the sun, moon, and stars to light up all of the earth just so God wants your life, my life, the lives of all of us here to impact the entire earth. Nothing provincial about God. God wants everybody's life to be blessed. 
showing us what God is like, showing others what God is like, by doing good things, right, for other people. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the Bible? And do you remember what he said? Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible tells us candidly, clearly, that in ourselves we cannot obey God's law. God has to work inside of our hearts. He has to write his law in our hearts. But he will not write his law in our hearts unless we ask him to. Because again, he does not force his way upon us. But you remember the book of Ezekiel tells us that God can take this sin-damaged, stony heart that we have, and he can give us a very soft heart towards other people, towards God himself. Jeremiah 31.33 says, I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Living a life governed by love, that's what the second day of creation reminds us of. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, regarding God's purpose, we, we read, And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that, so here's the purpose, so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. So God's intent, God's purpose is to give you, to give you and you and you and you and me everything he possibly can so that having so much, I can share it. You can share it. We can share it. That's his purpose. That we all might be blessed by each other. So I believe the first four days of creation are echoed in other parts of the scriptures. The fourth day is tied to the sanctuary, very specifically, very specific links. The first three days are tied to God's character, his government, and his purposes. And I guess I'm left with the question every time I look at this story. Am I living a life of faith such that God is able to turn my life in the direction he wants it to go? Am I the kind of person whose life has become well-ordered, serious purposes? Not necessarily meaning no fun purposes, but serious in the sense of being far-reaching and impactful. Are we choosing a life of faith so that we can also be at home with God when this world is recreated? Are we in tune with God's character, his government, and his purposes? Only God can make that happen, but only you and I can say yes. Are you saying yes? Am I saying yes? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for creating our world, for making it such a, a rich place to live in. And Father, we know that through our own choices, we damaged this world. We humans did. But we also know that you want to recreate in us 
make our lives, make our world a virtual Garden of Eden again. Right here, right now. We don't even have to wait. Would you help us to embrace and be in tune with your character and your government, the way you lead people, and also with the purposes that you have for this world, for each of us? We want to be in tune with you, God. Would you write on our hearts your message, your teachings,